All right. Speaking of people you don't want to hang out with, I happened to stumble across this show on YouTube called Insufferable Bastards. Mm. Hi, this is Stuttering John Melendez from The Howard Stern Show. And for some really stupid reason, you're listening. Insufferable Bastards. Great name for a podcast, morons. Thank you very much, John. I think we're all going to die. Yeah, Leo. Everybody, welcome to Insufferable Bastards. My name is Carlos Danger. I'm doing a solo episode this week. I'll apologize in advance. I couldn't get together with my constant co-host, Mr. Brian Spears. Hello, hello. Brian's busy as hell, even working weekends, doing movie and television work. He's a special effects makeup artist. So I thought I would talk about and review the limited series or mini series. I guess mini series went out in the 80s, huh? Fell to bad marketing. No one likes a miniseries invokes cheese, right? Cheesy Dallas, Knott's Landing type stuff. But uh, I could say uh, that fits in this case. So I'm going to be talking about 1883, which uh, premiered a couple of months back and wrapped up. Uh, I guess it was a 10 episode run, 10 to 12 episodes relatively recently. Actually, I have no idea. I'm trying to <laughs> try to. I had some time to kill, so I watched 1883. I love a Western. You love a Western? I love a Western. Who doesn't love a Western with Sam Elliott? So I should say, warning, spoilers often and early in this here review. Do not listen to this if you haven't watched 1883, all right? You've been been warned, you jabroni. 1883 left me in tears. I was depressed at the end of this show. I was angry. It's a little bit manipulative, it's a little bit trashy, but it's also really damn powerful. I binged watched it over a few days on Paramount Plus, and I can't help but think, what the hell is the point of 1883? What, what point are they trying to, what's it trying to say? What are its politics? What are the themes of this damn miniseries or limited series I just watched? It wallows in misery and melodrama Laying it on so thick at times. By the end of that last episode, I really felt like I was drowning. Couldn't sleep afterwards. No joke. In that last episode, or thereabouts, a teen dies while being cradled by a parent, hence my tears. I'm a father of two, you sons of bitches. A man's gangrenous limb is hacksawed from his body in gory detail. A man awakes to snuggle his wife only to find she's a corpse. An old man eats a bullet in the most glorified act of self-destruction since Bruce Dern went for a swim at the end of coming home. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are in the gnarly, hairy, knuckled hands of esteemed American screenwriter Taylor Sheridan. A guy who I assume fast-forwards through all the Ken Burns documentaries looking for the gory parts. Because 1883 strikes me as, quote, elevated, unquote, torture born. 1883 is a prequel, as you undoubtedly know, to the most popular television program no one has seen, program, Yellowstone, a neo-Western that Sam Elliott, the star of 1883, doesn't like because he says it plays too much like Dallas, the 1980s primetime sudzer. My opinion, Sam Elliott is dead on in his critique. Yellowstone is every inch a soap opera for men. It's part of a new genre. 
It's a masculine fantasy for guys raised on Rambo, First Blood Part 2, and later Tombstone. Whenever I hear somebody say Tombstone is a great Western or one of the best Westerns of all time, it's born from the same dim bulb man goo that spawns Sons of Anarchy, Mayans, and all those scripted reality counterparts, Deadliest Catch, Ice Road Truckers, and a whole bunch of others that are not worth Googling for inclusion on this here list. But maybe, just maybe, Sam Elliott doesn't realize that 1883 also fits squarely into the list of manly men's soap operas that I assume are all on Joe Rogan's Netflix Watch Next list. But yeah, I'll admit, 1883 and those other mentioned, others mentioned, are engrossing in a primal brain sort of way. Here's the plot. Sam Elliott is Shay, a Civil War veteran with PTSD to spare, who teams with fellow vet Thomas, played by LaMonica Garrett, and he's a black man, a former slave who fought for the Union. These two crusty veterans team with James Dutton, played by Tim McGraw, a Civil War veteran who fought for the Confederacy. They team to guide a group of Eastern European immigrants from Fort Worth, Texas to Oregon. Dutton, by the way, comes with a wife and family. His wife is played by Faith Hill. Her name is Margaret. A young son is with them who really plays no part in the story. (laughs) And most importantly, he has a teen daughter named Elsa, played by Isabel May, relative newcomer. Elsa is the main character of this story. The story follows her from meek teenager to essentially tough guy cowboy, the last of the hard men. Isabel May gives a star-making performance here, and I'm sure she is an actress who is here to stay. Yet Taylor Sheridan's script does May no favors, because 1883 is way down by an unnecessary and repetitive narration delivered by May's character, Elsa. This narration crushes the show, So by some of the unnecessary lines, it has stuff like this. Death hides in creek beds, possesses animals. It hides in tall grass waiting. With every death, our father moved camp a little further away. As if death was not the result of accidents and disease. But death was its own disease. And carelessness was contagious. As these words are spoken, we get... We get, guess what we get? We get a montage of Eastern European immigrants dying in all the horrible ways described in the narration. There is a lot of this in the show to the point where the immigrants feel like red shirts from Star Trek or random extras getting eaten by zombies on The Walking Dead. I mean, get this. This is like, this is a show that shows you a sunrise in Texas. You can see it. It's framed beautifully. Breathtaking shot of a Texas sunrise in 1883. But then it has Elsa, the narrator, describe that sunrise to the viewer as we watch it. It, What? Show. Don't tell. The show's overwritten. There's too many words in this damn show. Cut out the narration. Elsa, playing the role of narrator again, spouts lines stuffed with wisdom. That line I read is just from episode one. It contradicts the character we see on screen and the way she's carrying herself. Now, I understand. 
a narration maybe taking place sometime in the future. But I think nevertheless, it puts too much of the story on Elsa's shoulders. And giving her character the widest story arc and essentially the most important story arc and the one the viewer is supposed to identify with the most derails the story. It doesn't work. So much happens to Elsa, it started to strike me as dark comedy. It was getting, it was approaching Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Guy gets his limbs cut off and says it's merely a flesh wound. In the course of like 10 minutes in one episode, she falls in love, loses her virginity. Maybe it was two episodes, I don't know. Loses her virginity, tells her parents about it, announces her intention to marry, watches her new boyfriend die in front of her, kills the guy who killed her boyfriend, pulls a gun on another dude, episode or two later, falls in love with another guy and kisses him as a tornado literally passes over their head. A tornado passes over them. And that's their first kiss. Or, or not their first, but it's, it's ridiculous. I'm sorry. There's also a flat-out ridiculous scene in which Elsa finds a piano that's been left behind by immigrants who had to dump their stuff out of their wagons in order to make room for a river crossing. They need to kill some weight. So Elsa sits down and starts to play the piano, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata while the camera shows the parallel action of the wagon train desperately trying to make it across the river while immigrants who don't know how to swim are falling and drowning to their deaths. You can see this moment coming, <laughs> the moment you see the piano in the stupid field and the way Elsa looks at it. It's cliched, it's forced, it's familiar, it's hokey. I'm sorry. It's bad storytelling, at least from this viewer's perspective. There's lots more cringe involving Elsa. A scene where she publicly declares her love for Sam the Comanche is so literal, it just becomes comical. But like I said, it's not the fault of the actress, Isabel May. The screenplay needed some chunks cut from it. Here's an example. After Elsa loses her first love and then murders a man, she's, you know, bummed. She's obviously and understandably depressed. So Shay, Sam Elliott's character who knows all about loss and mourning because he lost his entire family to smallpox, has a conversation with Elsa. And it's a wonderful, emotional, powerful, moving scene where Shay delivers his wisdom and his experience with loss to Elsa, who's just experiencing this for the first time. It's completely believable. It's all delivered through dialogue. And it'll bring a tear to your eye. I, it floored me. But Elsa repeats this with every main character in the story. Her mom has a heart-to-heart with her. Then her dad has a heart-to-heart with her. Then one of the cowpokes has an abbreviated heart-to-heart with her. One heart-to-heart! All these heart-to-hearts diminish the impact of the heart-to-heart between Sam Elliott and Isabel May. Why so many heart-to-hearts? Stuff like this is repeated again and again and again. This is the most repetitive damn 10-episode miniseries I've ever seen. The story didn't need every major character to get a counseling session with Elsa. It was repetitive. So much happens to her. Plus her constant narration. We're constantly in her head. After a while, Elsa feels like the guest who wouldn't leave. Enough Elsa, I need a break from Elsa. I found myself saying after a while. And, you know, I mentioned Sam Elliott. 
and he's extraordinary in, in this limited series. To me, it's by far the best performance of his career. With no reservations, I say that. When the story isn't about him, you're waiting for the story to get back to him. 1883 has a lot in common with that great old CBS miniseries, Lonesome Dove. Some of the source material is the same. Now, mind you, Lonesome Dove was a 1980s miniseries on broadcast television in the Knott's Landing slash Dallas era. And there was this interesting dichotomy happening in that miniseries because you had Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones as the lead. They're the lead actors in the thing. They're Texas Rangers. Both give the performances of their careers and essentially make the story better by their mere presence. But they're surrounded by a cast that included Ricky Schroeder and Robert Urich. I mean, that's a, no offense, but that's a steep drop-off in acting ability from Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones to Silver Spoons and Spencer for Hire. And I hate to say this also, but 1883 has some of that too. You get Sam Elliott knocking it out of the park as Shay but he's acting opposite Tim McGraw. Tim McGraw can't infuse his character with life in the same way Elliot can. It's a giant mismatch. I think Tim McGraw was woefully miscast in this. McGraw's character is a reluctant killer, but he's also cold-blooded. I gotta grab a soda. He's got untreated PTSD. But at the same time, he's like a Cliff Huxtable-level sitcom dad when it comes to his family. He gets all puppy-eyed. But he's also a killer. I, I just didn't buy McGraw on this part. And I couldn't help but imagine how a Josh Brolin or a Matthew McConaughey or even a more traditional character actor like Shea Wiggum would have done with that role. Just more gravitas. I hate that word, but I just used it. The way McGraw plays it, the character comes across a little awkward instead of complicated. I really do think the casting of McGraw is a big problem. In this story, he's adequate, but he's more Robert Urich than Robert Duvall. So I was saying at the start that 1883 has stuck with me, and it really has. I was trying to figure out its themes and its politics, maybe, as I was watching. So like on one hand, the screenplay just seems to be saying crossing the country in the 1880s was incredibly dangerous with death awaiting you at every turn at any moment. And, you know, the early episodes, or maybe the entire show, feels like a horror movie. There's a sense of impending doom and awful things happen to people. Women, children. So maybe the goal Tyler Sheridan had here was just to get that on the record. Sort of downplay the heroism. Or, what is that word? You know what I mean. Sort of the myth that's built up, built up around about the Old West. He just wanted to get something more... Uh, leaning toward reality or the truth, you know? Like, whereas The Godfather was about this big picture of a family and, and American ideals and loyalty and all those kind of big concepts, Goodfellas was just a look at violent scumbags, which is really what organized crime is. So is 1883 the Goodfellas of Westerns? I don't know. The characters in the, in the story talk a lot here about survival of the fittest, essentially. There's also so, sort of an Ayn Rand vibe to the proceedings. 
know, from Elsa's never-ending narration, I think cities have weakened us as a species. There are no consequences there. Step into the streets without looking, and, and, and the carriage merely stops or swerves. The only consequence, an angry driver. But here, there can be no mistakes, because here doesn't care. The river doesn't care if you can swim. The snake doesn't care how much you love your children. And the wolf has no interest in your dreams. If you fail to beat the current, you will drown. If you get too close, you will be bitten. If you are too weak, you will be eaten. Like, I, don't, I don't know how many times the word weak is in this freaking screenplay for 1883, but it appears a lot. So I, I don't know, rugged individual, uh, individualism and watching out for yourself and yourself only is a way to survive, it seems to be saying. Institution and things like the government are bad because they ultimately become corrupt and you got to go look out for yourself, you and your gun and your baby, and that's it. The Civil War uh, veteran cowboys here, Sam Elliott, Tim McGraw, LaMonica Garrett, the actors, are clearly shown to be superior to the Eastern Europeans that they're supposed to be helping because, you know, the cowboys are capable manly men while the Eastern Europeans are interested in stuff like furniture, I guess. They start dying immediately because, I guess, they're inferior. Again, like the extras on The Walking Dead. The story doesn't do much to make them human, especially compared to the never-ending attention it pays to Elsa, who uh, sort of looks like the frontier daughter of former Fox News personality Megan Kelly. And I guess this whole thing raises a whole host of questions that have been raised by other reviewers asking about or trying to look at how Taylor Sheridan writes about race and women and et cetera, I guess. Plenty of people have pointed out that 1883 is like weirdly free of racism, which I don't think is an accurate representation of the error, <laughs> if memory serves post-Civil War. The fact a freed slave is teaming with a Confederate soldier here is never really addressed other than that they've both been through the shit. Sam Elliott, in his now infamous interview with Mark Maron on the WTF podcast, tried to say, I think, that the myth of the West is actually that the West did not involve the family unit. I think that's what he was trying to say. It wasn't about like just manly men or loners, you know, it wasn't Clint Eastwood and the good, the bad, and the ugly. He had mentioned in that interview that he had just come from spending time with Texas Cowboys and their families, which I assume he, maybe he was talking about filming 1883 because it's all authentic locations, another thing he sort of touches upon in an idiotic way in that interview. So I don't know, is 1883 an ode to the traditional family unit? That the traditional family unit and so-called family values is what made the country great? Is that what it's, I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. But I will say that I just watched The Sisters Brothers, which came out in 2018. It's a Western set roughly around this same time period, right after the Civil War. It also involves a trip to Oregon, a guy trying to uh, get rich off gold. It stars uh, Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley. It ultimately has a clearer point of view about what it's trying to say when it comes to things like family and this period in American history overall. It tells a much less expensive, much more focused story. But less expensive, I mean, that it looks like a low budget. You know, they were having money problems to me, it strikes me, because it's really a 
controlled movie. But I think it's cast, which includes Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed, make the thing come alive in a way 1883 does not. I was watching a documentary on William Freakin where Tarantino said that casting is like 80% of a movie. They were talking about Saucer and how Steve McQueen might have made a better lead than Roy Scheider, which I disagree with, man. I think Roy Scheider's underrated. But if casting is 80% of a movie, you can see it. You can see that in action in the Sisters Brothers. And you can also see the opposite when you don't have perfect casting. You got one guy perfectly cast in 1883 and the rest kind of, well, is the, the Elsa character's good too. So you got two good cast members and the, and the rest are kind of weak. I'm starting to blab. Sorry. Another thing, like the whole portrayal, 1883 is getting some props for its portrayal of females, notably putting Elsa, an 18-year-old girl essentially, so front and center. On Rotten Tomatoes, a critic named Carissa Pavlika noted that, quote, focusing the story on Elsa Dutton offers a uniquely fresh female perspective. But does it? Maybe I'm cynical here, but it kind of feels to me that was... That character exists so someone could say that line. A critic could write that. Because others are of the opinion that Elsa's character or her arc is just that she she turns into a traditional movie cowboy by the end. She turns into the traditional movie dude. Uh, Again, I think there's some truth in that. I'd also argue that you know, if this is a family values movie, which maybe you could argue then, oh, this is a conservative Republican movie. I don't know, right? Because that's traditionally the party that uses that, that moniker in marketing. Elsa is the opposite of that, though. You know, at the end of the day, she is the single most self-involved character in the whole series. You're crossing the plains. Death awaits you at every corner. You can't pee without getting bit by a rattlesnake, run over by a runaway wagon, bandits, Plague. But Elsa, can you like keep an eye on your little brother? He's like five years old. Can you like maybe put aside your personal growth for a moment and what you're experiencing here on this wagon train ride and maybe babysit for a second or two? Dude's five years old, Elsa. Is this really the time, Elsa, to start up multiple romances? Do we really have time for you to fall in love with Comanche Warrior, Elsa? Couldn't you hold that off for like another week or so? Can we just at least get to where we're going? Can we, can we live another month, maybe? Can we just survive this trip during which half of our travelers are dying because Sam Elliott's character never bothered to tell them not to drink the water without boiling it? I guess he just, on the to-do list, he, he forgot to do that. I guess he didn't have like an Excel spreadsheet in those days. He also didn't properly uh, inspect the wagons for extra weight before setting off on the trip, you know? So that created some problems when they hit their first river. But Elsa, really, can you just... We're having some issues here. Maybe don't think of yourself. I understand puppy love and first love and all that. And you're living, you're living your best life, but maybe now's not the time. Maybe, I mean, now's the time to be a little more uh, community minded, huh? Maybe rugged individualism gets us killed. Maybe that's what Taylor Sheridan's trying to say. That all that stuff about a uh, rugged individualism and blindly forcing your family to go uh, across uh, the ends of the earth. Maybe that's the dumb good for us today, but maybe, maybe that was a uh, selfish back in the day. I don't know. Finally, 1883 for all its praise and accurately presenting the time period. I mean, if you look on Reddit, the discussion of the last episode, 
a lot of people just watch this show. I don't know if it's the only reason they watch that show, but people like to comment on the historical accuracy of Taylor Sheridan and the, and the Westerns he produces. But, you know, at the same time, the Cowboys are presented as superheroes. These are supermen, which is a Western cliche in Hollywood that goes back 100 years at this point. Sam Elliott's character is 75 years old in 1883. Yet he's able to shoot from horses, get shot himself, run, ride, punch out people half his age, doing things that are superhuman. Now, the real Sam Elliott is 77, and I bet he can still do a lot of things he's shown doing uh, in the movie or miniseries or limited series. But, I mean, the fact is that the average lifespan in the U.S. in 1883 was 40 years old. So, I don't know. Is that accurate? That's really picking it apart a little bit. But those are my thoughts on 1883. We will be back next week for a traditional episode. I know me talking alone into a microphone can be boring, and I apologize for that. But I did feel the need to express myself on 1883. So I guess at the end of the day, I highly recommend it. Because what's better than consuming content that you then talk about, right? That you then reflect upon. So I wish Brian had watched it because I thought I thought we could have had a really good discussion, but he's he's busy doing other stuff. So without any more rambling, this is Carlos Danger for the purposes of this broadcast. Ooh.